1: The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience on this glorious Friday, August the 3rd. Thank God it's the end of the week. Um, Really busy week as it started, Um, but it kind of slowed down. The pace really slowed down to the typical summer August. I was wondering when August would finally set in in uh, terms of political news. But uh, this is Foreign Policy Friday. I promised you another one. And we got Jordan Schachtel, our national security correspondent, on the line. Hey, Jordan, how's your week been going? Hey, Daniel, it's been going well. You know, I got a lot I want to talk to you about, um, but I'd be remiss if I don't comment on my Twitter storm before we go far and we'll start off with domestic. Um, I just want to comment on two things going on. You know, we said this was a quieter week towards the end of the week, but the truth is it's actually not quiet at all. If we had a conservative movement with a vision, an agenda, a blueprint, and a desire to implement it, you would understand that there's two seminal issues, one dealing with social, sec- um, with with fiscal, one dealing with security that cut to the core of who we are supposedly as a movement and what we stand for, and yet we have the worst elements now being promoted by the champion of conservatives who, for better or for worse, is Donald J. Trump – And that is Ivanka Care and Jailbreak. So I don't want to get into this too much. I'm going to do it more on the show next week on Monday. But, you know, as I ended off uh, yesterday's show with, Trump is now being convinced not just to support this first-step jailbreak act, which was the retroactive early release. You know, at the time, a lot of members of Congress and my critics were like, Daniel, this is not sentencing reduction. This is prison reform. And really, obviously, it was back-end jailbreak. So, yeah, it didn't do it at the front end, but at the back end, it lopped off 50% of sentencing for some of the most violent people in the country. But Actually, now they're getting Trump to tack on the Lee Durbin bill, which will do front-end sentencing reduction, including opening up um, sentencing of juvenile murderers, life in prison without parole. Now, let me ask you, who is serving ju- uh, as a juvenile um, life without parole in federal – not state, but federal prison? If you guessed MS-13, you were correct. That's mainly who it is because, by definition, we're, we're dealing with immigrants if they're in the federal system for simple murder. Um this is like this would be the equivalent of Obama running for president and then repealing Obamacare okay I mean this is more antithetical to anything Trump has ever stood for than ever before but we got Jared bringing the Cokes into the White House while Trump is complaining about the Cokes. this is what happens when you don't have a conservative movement willing to call the balls and strikes um so you know again we'll get into that later this week. Then you have Ivanka Care. Now it's not an imminent threat, but Marco Rubio introduced a bill, Joni Ernst is signing onto it, Deb Fischer and Wagner is introducing it in the House. It's you know this is something that is only going to grow legs and not go back. Um, I have a comprehensive piece out taking it on culturally, fiscally, how it actually uses social Social Security and makes both things even worse. It is antithetical to everything we believe in, but there's silence. Nobody wants to criticize this White House. And when I say criticize, I mean, you know, the same way Reagan's base did to Reagan. Like, hey, you know, like, dude, this is not going the right way. And, you know, finally, before, and I don't want to keep Jordan too long here, before we get to foreign policy, um, I just want to address a point about criticism. So a lot of people say, well, but Daniel and Gorsuch and a tax cuts and uh, Iran deal. And look at it, he got rid of, you know, the short term health care plans this week. Dude, then that's great. And we praise it when it happens. But, Let me give you an analogy. There's a difference between two scenarios with a husband and a wife. Scenario A is the husband did so much good for the wife that day, bought her flowers, gave her so much TLC. um, But then you know, one half an hour of the day, he was just really lost in thought, had a tough day at work, and maybe wasn't so responsive to her conversations or something. And then she gets very insulted. Well, you know, I mean – The guy's very distracted. He's a lot to do, and a lot of that is he's trying to do good for her. You know, this comes uh, up, and and, and for anyone who's married, will know what I'm talking about. Versus a second scenario where the guy bought her flowers, did a bunch of good stuff, and then later in the day slapped her in the face or was caught with someone else in his bed. Right? That's not okay. That the fact that he did good things doesn't ameliorate that, and that needs to be addressed. So there's one thing: if he didn't yet get to getting rid of some of. Obama's bad policies in sphere A, B, and C. Well, it's tough. There's a lot of adversity. There's a lot to do. But there's another thing when he has Jared and Ivanka downright bringing the sewer into the White House and pushing new things that even Obama couldn't get past because it would have marshaled opposition in Congress and the conservative base. Now, rather than Trump being a shield against this stuff, he's a sword against us. It's even worse than having Hillary for those issues. So I just want to make that clear. If I'm the only one doing this, I'll do it. But um, you know this Javanka thing is very tough because you know it's his own family, so people are very leery about criticizing them because they don't want to lose access to Trump. But it's just stupid. Um, these are major issues. But um, anyway, rant aside, Jordan, I want to start off with Iran. Um, let me. Frame it like this to segue into what I was just talking about. I, I really like a lot of what I've seen the last six to eight months from the White House on foreign policy. He wound up categorically getting rid of the Iran deal. Um, you know, he stopped the belligerence from North Korea on whether it's succeeding or not. He certainly didn't give anything, and he only got you know the prisoners released. Um, but then, you know, recently we're hearing some things that sound kind of liberal. You know, some of the things he's saying. Things he says to Putin, some of the things about meeting with the Iranian leader, some of the things he's doing with North Korea. And you know we could dismiss it all as fake news, no, look at what he's actually doing, and it's good, and and that is all true. But Jordan, as someone like me who's more of a generalist, I deal with a lot of issues. So don't you see my concern that more than any other president in history, we have a guy who doesn't understand mutual exclusivity of things? So he'll literally get on Twitter and say – this guy sucks on crime. He's weak on crime. We need to be tough on crime. And then he'll pr- promote a bill that like violates every part of his crime, drug, and um, immigration agenda, and it will be lost on him. So my concern is, are we seeing some of this with Iran and North Korea since we met last, or are you not concerned?
0: There's definitely concerns about the situations in Iran and North Korea. Uh, if we want to start with Iran – Um, You know, there's um, a countrywide protest movement going on right now. It's picking up a lot of steam. A lot of people are really upset with the ruling Islamic regime because, you know, either the economy or the political oppression or a combination of both. Um, Iranian people are not happy right now with the ruling regime. And I don't know what the president, you know, the president has a kind of like an open door policy when it comes to meeting with any world leader. But when there's a regime in place in Iran that doesn't really represent the interests of its people, then you kind of have to question um, who does the president really want to meet with here. Uh, When he suggests that he could possibly meet with the president of Iran, Hassan Rouhani, who's really just a figurehead, um, that really wouldn't make sense to me. I think at a bare minimum, he should demand that he meets with the Ayatollah who is his um, equivalent in terms of you know having control oh, over the country? That's a good idea. Um, yeah, so I, I think that you know Obama saw Rouhani as his equal, and that was a big mistake because then you know there's obviously Ayatollah Khomeini is above Rouhani, and Rouhani doesn't really have any decision making power. But y- you have to kind of question you know whether anything can be accomplished by meeting with the regime right now. Um, you know, I, I think that moving forward on sanctions is a really good idea. Uh, there's no American interest, I think, right now in negotiating with, with this regime. Um, you know, they don't have nuclear weapons yet. They're in a very weak position, and I think that you know, continuing to uh, you know, go full throttle against them is the wisest policy. I mean, if they are willing to basically surrender, you know, we'll hear them out. And, uh, you know, help the uh, transition to a new government. But right now, you know, it's still a radical Islamic regime that seeks our destruction and chance for it every Friday afternoon. So I don't really see where we're going with this one.
1: Sure. No, I mean, in general, especially with Iran, you know, there's nothing that definitively gives me concern about the administration's direction. They categorically got rid of the Iran deal. It looks like they're going to go pedal to the metal on Europe now, um, demanding that they either fish or cut bait with doing business with Iran. Um, and, you know, you got Pompeo, you got Nikki Haley, you got Bolton in there. I don't agree with them on all issues, but on this, I mean, you know, we're all on the same side and they're solid. It, it's, it would be hard to imagine. And, and, and you know, as, as much of a hawk as I am on this stuff, I don't mind in a vacuum sitting down with anyone if it's from a position of strength. Um, but, you know, again, it's just like, what I'm saying is we're seeing with this president, a lot of times he could do a really good thing and then, at the same time, kind of undermine that with another policy, and it's just bizarre um, to to close the loop in Iran. So you mentioned the protests, and I think the very first time we were on together that we did a Foreign Policy Friday, it was a couple months ago. Maybe, gosh, I'm forgetting how long it was when when the protests originally broke out, and it was the what we felt was the best opportunity to overthrow the Iranian regime, um, just on the cheap. Without you know getting involved in civil wars and military occupation and so much money, uh, just use their own people um, and just throw some crap in the game and kind of uh, use our tools of statecraft to encourage it. And I felt that we didn't do it, and it got squelched and it died down. But now you're seeing that, among other things, the sanctions are amazing. You know, this in itself proves the other side wrong. We're having our cake and we and, and eating it too, right? So on the one hand. We're the one that we're choking them off. But on the other hand, the people, maybe some of them don't like America, but mainly, correct me if I'm wrong, what you're seeing is not death to America so much. It's, um, you know, with the currency being, you know, going in the toilet, the blackouts, water shortages in, in a lot of the major cities, um, you're seeing them protest slogans like get out of Lebanon, get out of Iraq, bring our money back home. So, don't we have a major opportunity now to, like, a second chance? And do you see any signs that the administration is going to take take this uh, opportunity?
0: Yeah. So, the administration has been kind of floating some plans out there, whether or not to support the protests um, overtly. And I think rhetorically, they're behind the Iranian people, but they're leaving it at that right now and just kind of seeing how this plays out. But. You know, from what you're seeing, you know from these videos being protested from on the ground in uh, Tehran, in the capital of Iran and elsewhere, uh, it's taken a very anti-regime, uh they, they've taken a very anti-regime approach. Um, they don't blame the United States at all for their economic woes. And I, I assume they, they could, because you know we're the ones enacting sanctions, but they're rightly blaming the regime for stirring up needless hostility with the rest of the world and isolating themselves. And, you know, it's their responsibility for having sanctions imposed on them because they're the ones that are threatening, um, you know, our allies in the Middle East and also chanting for death to America and trying to build a nuclear weapons program. Uh, I think that an average Iranian just wants to see Iran become, you know, part of the community of nations. They don't want them to become the next North Korea and become this you know adversary to the world i think that you know most iranians are relatively well educated and um you know they don't really subscribe to what's going on um inside of tehran with with the iranian parliament and with the iranian regime uh they just want to kind of get rid of it altogether but us policy right now um mike pompeo gave a big speech i think it was last week um to iranians Iranian, uh, the Iranian diaspora in America, and he basically said that you know we support you, um, but in terms of delivering aid, um, we're doing it through our messaging, and I think that's okay. Just to leave it at that right now, and uh, you know we'll see how these protests continue to develop. But you know it's not looking good for the regime, um, especially. There's a lot of women's rights advocates um, that are sick of living under a fundamentalist society that uh, strips rights away from half the population. And there's just a lot of resentment against the regime right now. So uh, I don't think that now's the time. And the Trump administration's policies have been terrific so far. But and I think now's the time to continue, you know, keep that foot on the gas pedal.
1: Exactly. Don't don't let up. And and I think, you know, just to get back to our uh, framing here, why we care about foreign policy, what aspects we should or shouldn't care about, what ultimately affects our national security, our um, you know, ability to survive as, as a dominant nation and peaceful at home, you know, really, like, to me, the the opportunity to potentially overthrow a regime that is the biggest threat and do it on the cheap, you know, not the way we've been doing it with the nation building, it's it's something we should really do everything we can to make that happen because I, I believe getting back to our, you know, Matrix of world threats. This is the biggest one. Um, you got China, you got Russia, you got North Korea. They're the same thing in terms of having statecraft. Now, they don't yet have nuclear weapons, but if but that's the point. We're at the cusp, so we can make a difference. They fund all the terrorism. They fund the most um, well-organized group, Hezbollah, which, as we've noted on the show a number of times with Joseph Humire, our Latin American expert, um, that they pose the biggest threat to our border... I just had a off the record conversation with a border agent with the you know the SIA is coming through Laredo Texas that is there's a good reason to believe my thesis on the Zetas cartel working with Hezbollah is true they affect our homeland and unlike China Russia North Korea They have the messianic Islamic view mixed with the tools of statecraft. So you know, we always say the Sunni groups are crap. There's nothing there. If you don't let them in your country through immigration and if you go after terror financing, um, which is the mother's milk, they can't do anything without money, they're done. There's nothing they can do to hurt us. You make the right plays with Turkey and um, Qatar, which we'll get to in a minute. You're good to go. I'm really, you know, that's what I've come to view the Sunni groups. Even though most will say, "Well, what do you mean they're responsible for 9 11?" Well, yeah, we brought them in the country, and then we have the Muslim Brotherhood operatives and the Alawakis that inspired them on on our own soil. That's not foreign policy, Friday Jordan. That's not foreign policy. That's that's domestic policy. That's not suicide. To me, Iran is really where it's at. Where you got to put all your tools. And I'm not saying, you know, we we have an invasion, but you know. Unlike the other countries that aren't even countries like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, you know, you just tweeted this out: women lifting up their hijabs. You know, you're not going to see that in Afghanistan. Um, this is not just about economics, right? Yeah, it's. Um,
0: you, I, I think that there's a moral case to be made for for U.S. support, and in what in what fashion that support comes in um, can definitely be debated amongst you know, the the foreign policy and, you know, American society communities. Um, but, you know, we'll we'll see. I, I, th- I think the case can be made, certainly, for for support um, from a lot of avenues. Uh, I don't think that anyone's calling for military intervention or anything like that. Um, but there are certainly ways, um, you know, we have a big intelligence community, and there's certainly ways to support people um, on the ground. And I think it eventually... The issue we have, of course, is that while there's so many people out protesting in the streets, um, the average Iranian citizen doesn't have a right to a gun, right? So if you want to overthrow a tyrannical regime, um, something needs to happen. Either, either the IRGC you know and, and the crazy goods force people, they need to decide uh, that it's not worth you know killing their own citizens. Or they might make the other decision that you know they don't care about the majority, kind of like what's going on in um, in Syria and Iraq, where you have like a lot of sectarian issues because you know the majority of the country might believe in one thing, but you know the other people have the guns. So we still have to kind of navigate this issue. Um, how do we deal with a ruling regime that doesn't have the support of the people that does have all the weapons? Um, and I think that. A lot of compelling cases have been made that in order to push out the regime, it's not going to just happen um, exactly. on its own. So that's how I, I think the Trump administration needs to approach this, and they need to seek the advice of, uh, you know, really the best people on this front to figure out, you know, we don't want we don't want to start, you know, shooting tomahawks into Tehran. But there has to be some type of element of support from the yes. U.S and from our allies.
1: And, and Jordan, this is what I really resent about, you know, our uh, beloved neocon uh, colleagues and friends. Because we're actually on this issue, maybe sometimes from a slightly different bent, but mainly from the same bent, we, we agree. But the problem is they've exhausted our national resources and resolve on so much of the other garbage interventions that when it actually comes to the one regime that can and will hurt us has been at war with us has the most american blood on their hands since um since uh, you know 79 whether it's the bombings all they've been behind everything and even 911 we now know from that court case um that uh you know it was iran was behind again it takes money and planning it was iran was behind that Heck, Iran's behind the you know the problems we have in Afghanistan now. Not that we should be there anyway, um, but you know that's where it's all at. And you know, I, I just again, final point on Iran. If you could just give us an update, just to you know, come full circle on Iran. You know, Tucker Carlson, um, a guy that I think is it's a, a very important voice. You know. Is willing to bust through political correctness on the social compact. On heck, he, he he even tackled jailbreak and and drugs and crime and and immigration. Um, and I agree with him. Mainly, that's what we need to focus on. We shouldn't get entangled in a lot of this stuff. But he kind of takes it to an extreme. It's like, yeah, hey, what do I care about Iran? Well, again, if they get nuclear weapons, we're screwed because there's no detente with that um, because they're messianic views. But, um, and then there's Hezbollah. But then. There's, the, there's another interest America always has which is just commercial shipping. I mean we need we need to keep that open and it's certainly not going to be the weakling European countries that are going to enforce that. So could you explain what's going on in the Straits of Hormuz now, um, what the Iranians are doing and why that's significant?
0: Yeah, so Iran is just commenced a a pretty large exercise and that exercise, they're drilling on how to basically shut down the Strait of Hormuz which is um you know which kind of is between the Persian Gulf or Arabian Gulf which is what the American policymakers are calling it now which I kind of like and and it separates that between the Gulf of Oman so it's a it's a small shipping lane and i think that about uh i think it's 10% of the world's oil is uh shipped through the strait of hormuz so if you're able to shut down the strait of hormuz you can create a global energy crisis and that's what iran is um, that's what their exercise is basically threatening. So they're drilling on how to do this. And of course, the US has a huge presence there, you know, in Bahrain. And, uh, you know, we have our Qatar base, and we have a lot of um, naval assets in the Strait of Hormuz, um, which borders, you know, on the East Iran. But of course, you know, we've been tasked as the world superpower with Making sure that the sea lanes stay open because, um, you know, some of our libertarian friends might not understand, but the sea lanes stay open only because there's an America in the world. If there wasn't, you know, we'd have no free trade. Uh, so,
1: and, so and, and they, they an love American themselves presidency. some commerce, you know.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but besides that point, um, Iran is getting aggressive with this drill and. Um, I think that we have CENTCOM and our Arab allies and even Israel said that it would be totally unacceptable for Iran to attempt to shut down the Strait of Hormuz. Um, So that's that's the latest. Uh, The American um, fleet in the Strait of Hormuz and the Arabian Gulf is really monitoring that closely. And hopefully Iran doesn't do anything stupid, because I think it would result. um, You know, it's a far different administration. The last administration allowed for our sailors to get captured allowed for these small boats to, you know, fire off machine gun rounds next to our boats. Um, so I don't think that Iran is going to be aggressive on this one. And I think they are just drilling, but you never know. But I think it would be a foolish mistake. And I don't think that the Trump administration would, would put up with it and they'd probably start blowing up some boats. So, you know, we'll see what happens. But I think the drills are going to end uh, by the end of the weekend. And. Uh, you know, we're going to continue to monitor what's going on with that.
1: All righty. So that's that's Iran. There. Let's move to North Korea. I, I've really I've been so busy with so many issues. I know nothing about what's going on. Just the last month, you know, we left it off. Look, it's kind of weird that suddenly we're engaging in diplomacy. Uh Trump feels as all this promise, but on the other hand, it doesn't look like in you know as in the past we're giving them anything. Um, a month later, is there still any indication of what came out of the Singapore Summit, where things stand? There's talk about whether they are destroying sites, whether they're not. What's going on? Where do you see this headed?
0: Yes, yeah, so we've come to a point in the negotiations where North Korea is doing some interesting things in terms of sending home the remains of our Korean War dead. you know, which isn't which shouldn't be understated. You know, it's a nice move to, uh, you know, show good. It's a good natured move to show that, you know, you're sort of interested in detente. Um, But, you know, the North Korean regime is known to play tricks all the time. And, you know, whether or not these are actually the the remains of our um, lost soldiers, uh, you know, we need to focus on denuclearization. And I think that's the threat. That's unfortunately what's going on with the North Korean regime, as they see this as a way to buy time, because this is what they've done in the past. Um, you know, they've they've held summits, they they talk to the South Koreans and say, okay, we're interested in peace now, um, but it really hasn't turned into anything, um, especially under Kim Jong Un and his father, uh, Kim Jong Il. So, uh, I, I think that it's the job of you know, pundits and reporters right now to ask the administration where they are in denuclearization. You know, just continue to remind them of that. Um, You know, that that should be our only objective. You know, we don't conduct foreign policy to to make friends, right? So we do it to protect our interests. So I I think that there hasn't been any signs right now that North, North Korea is invested in the denuclearization process and I remain um, you know, skeptical until we can actually see any signs of that.
1: But, but, but at the same time, you're saying you don't yet see any indication that we've given them anything.
0: Yeah, I, I think that the only thing that we're giving them is, is time. Um, and, and they're probably trying to make the case for sanctions relief. And from what I understand, that they, there has been a slight delay – in the imposition of further sanctions on North Korea. So, you know, if if you could see that as a victory for the North Korean regime, but they have not been, you know, in exchange, they have not been hostile, overtly hostile towards us or towards our allies in East Asia. Um, So, you know, we're kind of at like a, a stalemate right now. But in terms of moving forward on denuclearization, unfortunately, The administration cannot count any progress on that right now.
1: It it just what what concerns me is again knowing what I see on domestic policy. I have every incentive to want to praise what they're doing on foreign policy, but you know this is the problem. Conservatives are always caught in on foreign policy. There's even more, you know, definitive information on especially on sensitive uh, diplomatic uh, banter. What exactly is going on? So you're caught in between this time period of mixed signals where you're not sure what to do with it. On the one hand, you know, you don't want to prematurely criticize, but on the other hand, you don't want to wait till it's too late to voice your opposition. And, um, you know, again, if conservatives don't raise concerns, it's not, you know, no one else will. And that's why I just, I feel very, very much at uh, an unease, maybe a position of unease when it comes to this. Um, but I keep taking solace in the fact that it looks like at the very least we haven't given them any anything. so at the worst they're they're not doing anything but you know it's no worse than before. Um, but we'll we'll take a look at that um, afterwards. I want to travel back towards the Middle East Israel. um you know this time last year, you and I were very concerned about the direction of Kushner and and um, Greenblatt and you know that that the administration might somehow like everyone else get sucked into this foreign policy porn obsession. <laughs> of of the two state solution the palestinians and then everything gets oriented around that and we won't do america first policies because it's all about how will this affect the, the, the peace plan and this garbage it's like it just it will not die it's like jailbreak it just it will not die it, it just comes back alive but the last number of months um you know i know you know as much as i can't stand kushner you you seem to be bullish on on where he's taking this. And in general, we see he's they're not talking about the two state solution. They've been solid. They moved the embassy. Um, and I, you know, kind of shut this issue off. I didn't feel I need to worry about it. I'm seeing today that the AP has a report out, Trump staffs up MIDI's team for peace rollout. That it looks like, you know, whereas I thought before it was kind of a throwaway, that now that they're, you know, they're trying to beef it up. Um, and then in conjunction with the fact that as good as things have been, better than any other administration, Netanyahu still does not appear to be pulling the trigger on annexing even the no-brainer parts of Greater Jerusalem. Do, do you is is there are there any concerns here, or is this all BS? And you don't you just see them more or less continuing the same policy?
0: Yeah, I think I would be more concerned. And, and you know, the two-state solution cartel people—it's like. It's an institution in Washington, D.C., so they need this to keep their jobs at all their uh, think tanks and sure. such. But um, I, I think, you know, the, the thing is, whenever the, the PLO has stepped out of line, this administration has hit them really hard. Um, and it doesn't seem like that they're going to get away with much. Um, so even if, you know, let's say the administration moves forward on this peace plan, which would just – um you know, it, it's such a low priority right now, which is, a, okay. I don't understand why they would, sta- they, they would staff up on this stuff right now. I, I don't know if it's like a PR move to, um, to maybe appease, like the, my hopeful outlook is that it's like a PR move to appease our Arab allies as to, you know, saying, okay, we're going to take a shot at this because, you know, you guys really like the Palestinian thing and, you know, we're going to present them with an opportunity. And um, I think, you know, guys like Kushner and Greenblatt and uh, Ambassador Friedman, very, very pro-Israel. And, you know, I don't see these guys as, you know, being, the past administration was obsessed in appeasing the Palestinians and trying to deliver them statehood. And, you know, Abbas kind of failed them because he's a he's a maniac and he only wants the entirety of Israel. And, you know, every Palestinian leader basically needs this uh, position as their mandate because it's, you know, one of the most radicalized populations on earth. Uh, So there, there will never be, I think, even, even if the United States presented the the Palestinian, uh, regardless under what any administration, if they presented them with the West bank and Gaza as a, um United Palestinian state. You know, the Palestinians have already rejected this offer multiple times because of divisions within, you know, the Palestinian leadership and because they want the entirety of Israel and would never, you know, accept Israel. Um but I, I I'm not so concerned with the Trump administration because of the people um the people that are that are there right now leading this process. Uh you have some very, very pro Israel actors that I think you know, even though there's an institutional need for this two state solution stuff, I don't think they're going to let um, Israel be sacrificed um, in exchange for this.
1: No, no. And, and just to reiterate my concern, and, and I agree with you, I'm not yet concerned. I think I think you struck the right balance there. It, it's just, again, it, it's, um, you know, one of the things that served me well over time in politics, why I think my intuition is usually right, is because. Uh, I am a generalist, and I follow many issues. And politics all comes together. The swamp is the swamp. The two-state cartel, the healthcare cartel, the open borders, the the leniency industrial complex with um crime. They they have so much freaking power, and they know everyone. And even when you think you have okay, you got your you know foreign policy wise, in Israel, you got Bolton, and you got Pompeo. Come on, you can't ask for better than that. But it's like you know you, we are our only advocates. I mean it's only conservative grassroots that will stand up for these issues, and if you don't watch out, of course these people are never going to throw Israel under the bus. It's a matter of – I look at a guy like Jared, and I know personally you know, one of the few issues him and I probably agree on is, is Israel, but I feel that – because he respects the swamp, I mean, he clearly does. He's bringing these people in. This office of innovation um, is bringing all these coke people, which I want to get to in a minute. Um, you know, he's not going to adopt the coke's uh, um, you know Israel position while he's adopting their crime position. But again, you see what I mean? They they entertain these people, and the inertia is so strong. Um, I just feel that we can never be too vigilant. Um, and and this is always this is the tough thing. Daniel, stop criticizing. But it's not a matter of criticizing. It's a matter of just like the left will aggressively try to get what they believe is right and moral, and they always speak to the morality of their morality. You know, I, why don't we have people on our side that aggressively want to ensure that we get our mandate? Um, so I just want to, if you could answer with that, just one, you know, one piece of information here. And again, it's not really a concern. Because every administration has done this, but I was just conversing with Cruz's office. Um, In June, they sent a letter to the State Department saying that, hey, pursuant to the 1987 Anti-Terrorism Act, hasn't the time finally come to get rid of um, the PLO consulate in in America, uh, given that according to law, we're not supposed to have it to begin with, there is a waiver – Authority, but that waiver authority cannot be used when they go to the ICC, um, you know, the uh, International Criminal Court to report Israel, which they did a couple times recently. So they they wrote a letter. Um, this was um, Cruz and Representative Russ Lettin from Florida. Please explain the State Department's rationale for its current position that the executive branch is in compliance with its obligations under Section 7041 M2B. Has this State Department conferred with justice on this issue has the State Department sought an opinion from office of legal counsel um, as it relates to the PLO mission um, have they communicated with the PLO about this issue you know so it's kind of left open do you know where this stands and why why state department's not being more aggressive
0: yeah well the state department as an institution is hyper anti israel so they'll pull out all the stops to uh you know, ensure that the Palestinians have representation in Washington, D.C. Um, there's a lot of articles that we can link to in the show notes. And I think this all comes back to the State Department kind of protecting the status quo as this uh, extremely Wilsonian uh, liberal institution that has a history of, you know, bias not only against Israel, but as a history of uh, even anti-Semitic behavior. And I think that's it, it, it's these decades-long bureaucrats in the State Department that'll do everything they can to protect Mm. um, the PLO, unfortunately. You know, they've been a thorn in Israel's side for quite some time. And I think that, you know, this State Department is way different because we have, you know, a a hawk and and Secretary Pompeo with with a a truly terrific track record on Israel. But, I mean, if you look at past secretaries of state, uh, of course, John Kerry, uh, he's really, uh, you know, a representation of what the State Department is. Um, you know, extremely anti-Israel, extremely hostile to Israel. Uh, you know, they treat Israel the way that a lot of these European governments treat Israel with complete disdain. And I think that's what, um, you know, the professional bureaucracy I think is stopping uh, the administration from. Of course, President Trump can get involved in this issue, but. You know, I think that this is kind of like a small ball issue for him. I think he he thinks that he got he got the embassy moved. You know, he probably doesn't want to go back to Israel too to uh, sure. go back to Israel policy right away. So I, I think it's just something that's being fought through the bureaucracy. And, you okay. know, we can uh, people like Senator Cruz are, are right to raise this issue because at least it calls some attention to to what's going on. And that, you know, I think we do have a legal mandate to to boot the, the Palestinian uh Embassy in DC.
1: No, for sure, for sure, and and that's the thing. Again, just to reiterate, I mean, we, you know, we are our only advocates, and you know, I can't think of a better person on this issue to run the State Department than Pompeo. But, you know, if if I were running the State Department, if you were running the State Department, I, I've come to learn that the they're so strong. And Jordan, this is what bothers me about our colleagues. It takes a village. Hillary Clinton was right. Not 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 to run a family, meaning but in 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 the context of politics, you need a movement. You meaning not just to keep like your guys in line, but sometimes you gotta give them the 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 counterbalance. You gotta make the case publicly so it makes their lives easier. It's not so much, Daniel, stop criticizing. It's a matter of you gotta you know, Reagan relished this. He wanted it. It helped him out to have that kind of pressure from the base because um you know no one else is going to do it and you know this is what I I write in Steve, Steve Dace's book coming out he asked a couple of his friends to write you know a couple pages of their thoughts and 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 I really focused on my thesis on Newton's political laws of of motion and and you know things will gravitate to the strongest gravitational pull and even if you have your best people in there you know the judiciary is a cesspool the state department is a cesspool um you know, th- there's a way of doing things. They come up with these bogus studies and talking points, and they sound very good. And you know, they they get taken in by it, or or even if they know it's BS, they don't feel like they have the the backing to fight it. And this is why we gotta be vigilant. Um, I'm with you generally on Israel. You know, I, I don't see yet uh, problems, but you know, putting this stuff together, we gotta gotta make sure we're heading in the right direction. We're running out of time. Couple quick issues: Turkey. Um, You know, for a while, many of us were frustrated that this administration was, you know, going weak on prosecuting those guys um, beating up uh, uh, Kurds on our soil, um, not trying to force the issue and kicking them out of NATO. Um, You know, generally the way we treated Erdogan and his response with that coup, um, when he's really the chief Muslim Brotherhood leader, Sunni terrorist sponsor, along with Qatar, it's all the money. It's not Afghanistan. It's not Syria. And Iraq, it's it's really Turkey and – not to invade Turkey, but again, soft power against him. So finally, it's, I find it interesting that none of that really changed the administration, but this imprisoning of Pastor Andrew Brunson is what set them off, and now they slap sanctions on. Could you explain a little bit what the sanctions are and are you seeing generally a posture change towards uh, Turkey from the government? Yeah. So
0: unfortunately, there has been no posture change. I think Turkey is doubling down on the extremism, and I think that there was, you know, there was a, there was really an international coalition. I think of uh, evangelical groups that really pushed this issue hard, and and Congress uh, responded um, with the, with the detention of Pastor Brunson. But what's interesting is that there's also apparently. And you'll see this in some State Department press releases. They reference other Americans that are imprisoned by Turkey because, you know, after that supposed coup, they threw like tens of thousands of people in prison. And I think there's a lot of dual nationals in America, uh, American citizens, that are actually stuck in Turkish prisons still to this day from that coup attempt a few years ago. Um, So we're still kind of fighting over that. Uh, But in in terms of of Turkey, we sanctioned uh, two high-ranking Turkish officials. Uh, we did not sanction the president, Erdogan, which I think we should have because he's the man oh, yeah. you know ultimately res- responsible for making the decision. You don't you don't um, hold an American hostage without the uh, you know the consent of the leading uh, authority in Turkey. So I think that um, it, it is, however, great to see that you know the president has been very had in the past been very cordial with Turkey and Erdogan, and he actually blasted them on on his favorite platform on Twitter <laughs> the other day so so you know he's invested now in this situation I think it's good that we're we're coming we're coming to recognize the reality of Turkey isn't our friend, and you know living in denial of that situation wasn't anything good. So I think now that this is becoming a huge uh, international issue with pa- Pastor Brunsman's uh, detainment and also other American citizens, I think I think it's good that we're raising awareness about that.
1: And Jordan, you want to know what the Daniel Plan of Action is? I mean, if we actually had again a movement that was more than just like virtue signaling and Focused on stupidity and actually had an agenda. There's something that we would totally back this up with. You know, because just you know, saying, oh, uh, I'll, uh, you know, sanction your justice minister, and that ain't going to do it. Um, Dave Bratt, uh, I don't know if he re- reintroduced it, but he had what's called the FIRE Act, F-I-R-E, that was the acronym. Um, it is – where is this? I'll, I'll find the bill name um, for our listeners it was HR fifty eight twenty-three, the naming the enemy within Homeland Security Act. Um, yeah, HR fifty-eight twenty-three, it basically said the following If you're a country that doesn't have freedom of religion, you know, where you you can have pastors going around um, you know, preaching Christianity in your country, then you cannot fund Religion on our soil. Now, you know as well as I do, Jordan, that this is a double whammy. Certainly now would be the perfect time to bring this up and show their hipo- – oh, oh, Pastor Brunson. Oh, really? Okay. Um, now you're not going to fund it. But it's not just as a way of getting Pastor Brunson out. I mean you could probably talk forever about the subversion of the Muslim Brotherhood in these Muslim Brotherhood mosques that the funding yep. – you know what? What is it in Prince George's County, Maryland, right outside of D.C.? The land. T- what's that mosque called? It's, it's this largest mosque in North America. The Erdogan built.
0: Yeah, they 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 have several mosques, and of course they fund academic institutions. And you know, big groups like people forget big groups like Care, Council on American Islamic Relations, the uh, you know, what started as a Hamas front group. They have very close associations with the government of Turkey, um, and the same goes with a lot of these Amer- so-called American Islamic groups and. You know that's why uh you know rep brat's bill would be so terrific is because it would it would start to cut off the funding um it, it, and we wouldn't necessarily need to pass you know a more controversial bill which I think we would support, which is you know designating the Muslim Brotherhood as a whole as a terrorist group but I think brat's bill would be less controversial and it would help chip away yeah. at these funding mechanisms uh, not only from Turkey but of course you know Qatar and you know the radical Moors uh in iran and
1: and elsewhere. And it would really put the left on in, in a bind here. It would totally checkmate them. Um, because they, they claim to, you know, support freedom and everything. And, you know, this is not banning mosques. This is, you know, you have a right as an American Muslim to, you know, have your religion here. But what there is no right to do is to have a foreign government fund it. I mean, that is very much within the purpose right. of the government to stop. Um, especially when they they fund terrorism and everything. So that is a big leverage point. I'd love to see. Um, In the remaining moments here, I'm just trying to see um, two more things. Um, I I think we'll we'll have to save Afghanistan for another time. The the cokes, Um, you know, I've really, I've, I've had it with them. I've had it with them, and then President Trump has had it with them, and totally allows Jared to bring them in and have the person promoting jailbreak, the head of a former Coke uh, group. Um, and have all these Coke people in that innovation shop. Um, but anyway, um, aren't they funding anti-Israel initiatives?
0: Yeah, so there's two great pieces that we can link to in the show notes. One's from a couple of years ago from Eli Lake at Bloomberg, which really breaks down the anti-Israel groups that uh, the Cokes are funding specifically. And then there's a very recent piece published about uh, six months ago in Tablet magazine by Armin Rosen, who's another fantastic reporter, Um Talking about how the cloaks have basically set up, uh, you know, these so-called realist foreign policy shops in academia that um, have professors who subscribe to a pretty radical world view, who hate Israel, Um, and so they're trying to kind of hijack, um, and they've made inroads in these libertarian-ish communities um, where Israel is very much viewed. Uh, with a hostile lens, and unfortunately, the Kochs they found through these investigative articles are providing a, a ton of funding um, into these programs. And without the Koch support, uh, they probably would cease to exist because these are, you know, academics that no one would be paying attention to, but they're given prominent platforms and you know big salaries to to churn out. Uh, very anti israel literature um, you know from from Harvard to georgetown and and elsewhere and it's kind of seeping into the mainstream thought process because the Kochs, you know of course have billions of dollars and you know they have every right to fund whatever they want to but you know they, the the cokes aren't um, you know these they're i think libertarian in a sense but they also kind of have a the very uh, you know, isolationist worldview that also happens to blame Israel for some of the foreign policy issues of the day, which is you know, very unfortunate. And I think that you know, the, the Kochs should really become transparent with what they're doing. Um, you know, They're kind of going the Soros Soros route when it comes to funding these anti-Israel projects. They do it very quietly, and it requires a lot of journalism to really break down what exactly they're doing. But it, it, it's very unfortunate you know, for people that are GOP. Uh, supporters and you know, want their mega donors to do responsible things. That the Kochs are not uh, not pro-Israel, and of course have very much an open borders, a radical open borders agenda.
1: Yeah, no, I mean that's very important to point out because the the, the Koch addiction is is everywhere, and 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 that's why Trump called them out because more and more in recent years they've been veering towards the left on a number of issues, um, helping out the Democrats, running ads praising them on. Um, you know, immigration, and, you know, what's disturbing is we're more and more getting the, what I call the stinger, but not the honey from them, you know, where we agree on certain economic liberties, on health care, on free market labor issues, you know, it kind of a juxtaposition to the two issues I started out with. You got Jared's jailbreak and Ivanka's, you know, socialist paid family leave. Why is it that the Kochs seem to be successful in having Jared promote, um their version of libertarian crime laws, but not successful in blocking very anti-libertarian and anti-conservative um, fiscal policy from Ivanka. So, you know, the, the utility of these groups, you know, Americans for Prosperity that, you know, we kind of fought alongside during the Tea Party era on fiscal issues under Obama and the bailouts, you know, a lot of that's going away, and we're really only getting the bad stuff from them, and I think it's important uh, we we kick that addiction because it's just uh, it's a big problem. Finally, <laughs> Um, Jordan, the last issue before we let you go, um, this is a big deal. I'm reading from CBS's um, San Francisco Bay affiliate. Details surface about Chinese spy who worked for Senator Feinstein for nearly 20 years. What do we know about this?
0: Yeah, so this was a crazy article. So there's a political article, a Politico article about you know foreign influence in uh, in Congress and. You know, halfway down the story, we learn that that, uh, Senator Feinstein, Diane Feinstein of California, had a Chinese spy employed by her for 20 years, as you said, and and it's remarkable because uh, this person was whose name is not known. She fired him a few years ago and was able. You know, talk about partisanship and bias in the media. She was able to sweep this issue under the rug until it just came out in a random political article. And of course, China is our chief adversary, and they had uh, they were able to place um, a spy on the ranking member of the Senate Intelligence Committee staff. And it doesn't seem that reporters are too interested in talking <laughs> about this, but it's pretty remarkable. And you know, Feinstein has kind of um, downplayed this and said, you know, he was only my driver, and he was also apparently. An- uh, her her uh you know advocate for the Asian American community and he you know spent time in the California office but you don't really know you know when 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 the chinese are placing spies in the senator's office i think that you know it it's worth a, a follow up story at least in in the new york times or washington post and you, you really haven't seen any of it and you know senator feinstein of course is an incredibly powerful um senator uh she has uh you know, so much influence uh, in the day-to-day politics, and and it, it, it's it's quite a fascinating story that China was able to place a spy in her office, and that the media doesn't seem to care.
1: See, but I wonder what does that say about Dianne Feinstein? Meaning, how did they even think to go to her to begin with? Somehow, I don't imagine or envision Russian spies being able to infiltrate Andy Biggs or. Yeah. Dave Brat or so, so the, some of these people.
0: Yes. So the story's kind of weird because it said that the Chinese, you know, were working on this American citizen for a while, a Chinese American. And they were able to, you know, convince him to start spying for China. Um, but the FBI interviewed this person uh, before Feinstein fired him and found that he was only passing political information. And of course, you know, we know that the Comey FBI <laughs> didn't really do a bankrupt job with anything. So. Uh, I, I think that maybe it's worth uh, you know investigating this person again because you know someone with even access to um, the emails address the personal email sent by F- Senator Feinstein could have access to some type of uh, you know top secret classified information through someone else and you know the relationships that this person made uh, during his time as a Feinstein staffer uh, so. Uh, I hope that there's more reporting on this, but um, you know, I certainly wouldn't trust the conclusions that the Comey FBI came to that this person didn't uh, retain access to any top-secret information, because it's very possible that he did.
1: Well, there you have it, folks. There's a, there's a lot to consume here, a lot to digest. We'll try to link to as much of this as we could find. Um, too much going on, too little time. So Jordan Schachtel is Jordan Schachtel, S-C-H-A-C-H. T-E-L on Twitter, just his name, and was it J Shackdale, right? J Shackdale at CRTV.com for your email. Um, yep. Yeah, that, that is it. And, and folks, if you want to be as energized as Jordan is, uh, and, and I are today, and I got to get Jordan on board with this as well, um, I'm telling you, you got to stop tossing and turning on at night. You need a quality purple mattress. Purple materials feel very unique because they're both firm and soft, they're breathable, so they're comfortable and cool in the summer. If you go to purple.com, issue promo code Daniel, you get a 100-night risk free trial, free shipping, free returns if you don't like it, um, guaranteed refund. And if you decide to keep it back by a 10-year warranty, um, again, free shipping. Also, I'm, I'm actually getting their pillows, too. I, I don't I don't have a pillow yet, but I hear it's terrific, and I'm going to report on that once I get one. So I'll have a mattress and a pillow Purple mattresses, promo code Daniel, the most comfortable, most scientifically built mattresses in America. And I'm telling you guys, we need it. We need well, well-rested patriots to fight for liberty, um, domestic and foreign. Have a great week, uh, weekend. This has been a very productive week here at, at Conservative Review. Um, Jordan's just one of our young talent. We got you know, Nate Madden. We got Chris Pandelfo We got Rob Eno. We got Jonathan Miller over at our CRTV side. Um, this is where you need to be. Turn off the poor news. Turn off not just the fake news, but the fake conservative news. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.